0: Good morning everyone, my name is Jason Brooks. I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon from the Scottish Rite Hospital for Children in Dallas, Texas. And I also serve as a chair for uh, the podcast committee for the Scoliosis Research Society. And you are listening to another episode of Scoliosis Dialogues. I am extremely excited to welcome our guest for today, Dr. Brian Newman from WashU. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Newman.
1: Great. Thanks, Jason, for having me. It's great to see you
0: again. Uh, Great to see you also. Um, So we're going to get into a little bit of personal details about you, and then we'll get into the amazing research uh, that you were part of. Uh, So first, I just wanted for you to chat about uh, just where were you born and how did you spend some of those formative years of your childhood?
1: Yeah, so I was uh, born in a small town called 84. Uh, never thought it was interestingly named until I went to college or when else thought it was interesting, but after a number. So it's about 45 minutes outside of Pittsburgh in the southwest area. Um, so I grew up there with uh, I have, um, three siblings and uh, grew up there my whole life. Uh, and we were big there in that area is big in wrestling. So we were really big about wrestling. And that has really kind of shaped me part of who I am today. Uh, so that's what I spent a lot of my time doing there in my young years. Perfect. Can
0: you just give me a bit of history? Like, so when you would write your address, you would put the number 84, or you would spell out 84.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you could, I guess you could do it either way. But the, the technical way to do it is actually to write it out, uh, was the way that, that we would do it. And like I said, I never thought it was anything interesting until I went to college. <laughs> and people were like, your, your place is named after a number, and uh, so so be it. It's interesting.
0: <laughs> wow, okay. All right, cool. So that's a good way to start out. And so uh, you mentioned you had three siblings, um, but what did your parents do for a living, and did that at all influence your decision to go into medicine?
1: Yeah, My um. You know, I, I don't have any family in medicine. I'm the first one to go into medicine. Uh, my parents, my dad um, has his own business. He's a painter and a carpenter. Uh, my mother, she had various jobs in the past. Uh, she was a dental hygienist and a real estate agent. And after she put the four of us through college, she then went to college herself. And now she is an elementary teacher. Um, so really, their, really cool. their experience have not really formed me into kind of uh, medicine, but they have really uh, ingrained in me the hard work that is needed to get to where you need to be in life.
0: So then how did the idea of becoming a doctor, you know, come about? Uh, Did you have some local doctor that you shadowed that kind of put that spark in you or where did it come from?
1: You know, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, in my young years, kind of learning about physiology and the way the body works. Um, As being an athlete, as everybody, we all have a friend that's an orthopedic surgeon when you get injuries. Um, So I had one that was in my town. Um, that I would kind of shadow in clinic and also in the operating room and really like the aspects um, of orthopedics. It really got me interested into medicine and then in, into orthopedics.
0: Excellent. Um, so uh, you obviously got into medical school and then you went into residency. Uh, I think everyone might have a vague idea of what they were interested in when they start an orthopedic residency. Uh did you know you wanted to specialize in spine surgery and if so or even if not so who were your spine mentors sure
1: so you know you know once again having this sports background i kind of thought i was gonna do sports medicine it was really what i kind of thought this is what i wanted to be you know i had this goal and aspiration to be the lead physician for the pittsburgh Steelers. you know everyone has oh, that really? goal when they're <laughs> kid. Yeah. Um, so going into residency i kind of went that mentality and that process uh, but as I was in residency, I kind of started really enjoying other aspects of orthopedics. And one of the main things I really enjoyed uh, was spine. I really liked the thought process behind it, um, taking care of the patients, the intricacy about the surgery, how the physical exam, radiology, the surgery all come together to play to improve these patients. Um, so that's really got my interest. And then, you know, I went to Jefferson is where my residency was. And, you know, we have um, a good relation with DuPont and that's where we would do our peds uh, rotations and it's really the time that I spent with Sukin Shaw there um, that really got me interested in kind of the deformity perspective of things um, with that. So, being at Jefferson, we had some great mentors uh, Dr. Cod Albert, Alex Ficaro, um, Alan Hillebrand, um, Greg Anderson, and then Sukin Shaw as well. It was all really people that really kind of helped me formulate my career and my decision process of saying, you know what, I really want to go into deformity surgery. And that's what then got me interested to go into WashU for my fellowship where I could train with um, Larry Lanky and Dan Rue and and Keith Bridwell.
0: That's excellent. Yeah. And of course, you just mentioned a number of SRS members and past uh, even some SRS presidents uh, who were your mentors. So it's uh, no surprise that you are where you are now in your career. However, I met you when you joined faculty at Johns Hopkins. Uh, And so was that your first job out of fellowship? Um, if not, then where did you work when you first finished your fellowship uh, with, with Larry Lenke in St. Louis?
1: Yeah. So after, you know, after finishing my fellowship, I told myself, you know, I want to do I want to have a deformity practice. I really want to be involved and take care of deformity patients, um, obviously, from my training. And that really made me look for careers or job paths that really could have that foundation for it already and also let me continue to grow and still learn from them, and that's what brought me to Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Hopkins was my first job there, and I've been having you know the fortunate to learn from Dr. Paul Sponseller, Dr. Kapkabash, Dr. David Cohen, all big deformity surgeons that are there um, that really kind of helped me continue to my my path of growing in my my career there, and that's kind of what brought me there. And I really enjoyed my you know nine and a half years there. Um, wow, nine and a half.
0: Wow, okay. Flies,
1: huh? Yeah. <laughs>
0: You know, so it's interesting. Uh, this interview is particularly special for me because you were my attending when I was a resident. And, you know, it, it was it's interesting how your experience can shape your own perspective. I thought all spine surgery that existed was what we did, which every surgery seemed to be some big, humongous, multi-level deformity corrections. And it wasn't really until I was studying for my written boards that I talked to folks from other programs, I realized, oh, some people mostly just did single level disc surgery. And I'm like, really? I didn't know that that existed. Uh, so <laughs> it, 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 was, it was quite a different experience when you were a resident at Hopkins with uh, the, the, the vast deformity experience uh, that was there. So that's excellent. So, you know, you were in a place of greatness when it came to deformity, but then you decided that you needed to make that jump to the next job there may be others. uh, And again, you did that almost 10 years into practice. There may be others who are listening to this, who are potentially making that same decision earlier in their practice, or maybe right about the same point as you are. How did you go about deciding that it was time to take that next step? And what advice would you have for other spine surgeons uh, who are younger in practice and maybe considering what the next step might be?
1: Yeah, no, great question. So you know, I was uh, fortunate that I, you know, I love my time at Hopkins and, and I really got the things that I needed from there working there. And, you know, what I you know, what I did in the beginning is I set a career path. I said, where do I want to be in two, five, ten years and where do I want to be in 20 years? So I really set a roadmap for myself. I was not looking to leave Hopkins in any way or shape or form, but I was always interested in, in the time from them now is really to have more of a leadership role within a department in, in some aspect. And it just was sh- what just happened that that Washu presented that to me and, and asked me if I'd want to come here and you know become the chief of spine and do that leadership aspect. So I think I was fortunate enough that I wasn't really looking for it. Nothing really kind of drove me away from Hopkins. I really enjoyed everything that I had there, and I hadn't. I felt I had a very successful career uh, clinically and academically. Um, I just was presented with another opportunity to continue to get to where I was or where I wanted to be on my on my twenty uh, year tracked in 10 years i wanted to be kind of in a division help kind of grow that help kind of um, develop something and it just happened that this was presented around the right time for me to do that
0: that's awesome that's awesome that's really good to hear so then you mentioned that your new role is being that keep a spine at, at washu uh there are there have been many storied leaders that have come out of there so is that the role that Keith Bridwell previously held or larry Lenke, or uh, uh mike um I'm blanking on his last name. I can't believe it. Mike Kelly. Kelly? Yeah, yeah. Mike Kelly. like so whose role did you step into?
1: Yeah, so this would, you know, this has been passed down uh, you know, through the years. Uh it was, you know, where Keith Birdwell wore Larry Lanky was, um, Manish Gupta had it and Jake Bohaski was as recently had it. Um and now I've been fortunate and humbling to kind of kind of be in that position where they are and I would say that they have really what has really attracting this job is they have really led the foundation here. We have a very strong reputation nationally here as well, and really set the groundwork for for me to kind of continue to work on that. And I hope I can do just as great a job as those people behind me. My me did that as well, and I'm going to lean on them for advice as I run into any roadblocks that they have had here as well. But um, you know, those will be the people that I'm kind of filling in those shoes in there, uh, uh, and excited to do. And hopefully, I could do just as great of the job.
0: We have no doubt about that at all, Dr. Newman, and congratulations on this new role. But really, this uh, episode is to talk about your research article that was recently published in the Spine Deformity Journal titled Return to Work After Adult Spinal Deformity Surgeon. Uh, you were the lead author the of this paper research with Society. a senior the Dr. Caliza as a author, uh, medical medical well as uh, this seems to be a, a paper with IFSG, the International Science Study Group. So, healthcare healthcare so from, from reading research, your paper, it looked like you had a uh, primary, primary goals Um uh, The first goal being that you wanted to... Um, you wanted to figure out uh, the proportion of patients that return to full-time work at various points after adult spine deformity surgery. You wanted to look at how, whether the invasiveness of the spine surgery affected uh, when they returned to full-time work. And uh, then you hypothesized that potentially adult spine surgery shouldn't limit the percentage of patients uh, who actually return to full-time work and so it's a really interesting just concept because as surgeons we don't just want to make the X-rays look perfect, but we also want our patients to get back to their regular quality of life. And, and so it's really interesting that you guys decided to look at this uh, question. What I wanted to ask you about is you measured the invasiveness of the procedure uh, by a invasiveness uh, a, well a adult spine deformity surgical and radiographical index. And it actually says that you uh, were the lead author in developing this index. Can you talk about that development a little bit more? Uh, how you went about developing the index and whether you use it in your clinical practice or is it just a research tool?
1: Yeah, great. Uh, so, you know, you know, when I, with the ISSG, we kind of looked into this idea here. We were kind of thinking through it and understanding that there's a lot of heterogeneous types of problems with adult dynoformity. And there's also a heterogeneous way to treat these problems. So in the literature, we looked at, you know, they had the MRSA classification that was used for invasions of spine surgery. That classification looked into different aspects of surgery, such as effusion, decompression, but it really didn't go into the heart of what we kind of do with deformity. They didn't have the osteotomies, didn't have the revision surgery, they didn't have the pelvic fixation, they didn't have the change of the radiographic parameters. So we felt that we could potentially improve that by adding in those parameters as well and looking at that. So we went through our database, and we looked at those different parameters to give each of those parameters a score based on how involved they are with the invasiveness. And we considered what invasiveness was based off of blood loss and uh, and um, operative time, and that's what they did in the MRSA study as well. So we took that same concept, but then we kind of triggered it to factors that are we use, we use in deformity surgery to give them that point system so we can come up with a score. The reason for the scoring system to be developed, as I mentioned, is – The treatment is very heterogeneous. So, you know, if you read the literature in the past, a lot of things were, you know, adult spinal deformity or everything was lumped together or they were separated by one factor. This is really trying to develop, you know, different aspects or categories of adult spinal deformity surgery, lump those together, and then kind of compare those different ones. So now we're not comparing apples to oranges. We're kind of really kind of categorize these into groups. Um, I do use it in my clinical practice, and it is definitely a research tool that we use, um, to compare, and we, you know, it's one of the factors that play in the patients. It's you know we also look at frailty or patient factors that play in this as well, and we're finding ways to kind of incorporate them together to come up with evaluating pair operative course outcomes and complications.
0: And uh, is this index like validated? Uh, I didn't read the baseline paper for the development of that, but is this uh, validated?
1: Yeah, so we, we, we um, developed in one of our um, ISC databases, then we validated in another, and, it, and it, it has been validated through that, and we've been using it in multiple studies, and it, and it has been validated throughout um, that it does does have a factor. I wouldn't say, you know, obviously there's some flaws to it or some things that make it don't make it the best, but I definitely think it is a great way to categorize it and for us to do what we want to do is compare different types of ASD surgery and see how they compare to one or the other.
0: That's really interesting. You know, I'm a peds uh, spine surgeon, and so I'm, my mind's already racing. Fortunately, a lot of the stuff that you have to do for every adult patient, we normally don't have to do. And so, um, but just for, for those who haven't seen this, this index, it's pretty interesting. If you do a, a regular decompression, that's, you get one point. If you do a fusion, that's two points per vertebra. If you do a three-column osteotomy, that's 14 points per osteotomy if you do a regular Smith-Peterson osteotomy, that's just one point per osteotomy. If you do uh, um, like an ALIF, um, uh, you get eight points per interbody fusion. And so it's very interesting how they assign points and certainly something that you all should look at. It's a nice table that they have in there. Um, So along those lines, you all had some really interesting results, which I'll just kind of go through here for our uh, listeners, because again, the whole goal is trying to see, um, do we get these, do we get our patients who have adult spine deformity back to full-time work? So what you found was that post-operatively, 15% of patients who were employed were working full-time at six weeks after surgery, 70% were working full-time six months after surgery, 83% were working full-time one year after surgery, and 84% at two years after surgery. But I think more importantly, when you compare patients uh, who were employed uh, pre-surgery to post-surgery, you had more patients able to return to full-time work at two years post-op at 84% versus 69% of patients uh, who were actually uh, fully employed. So it actually looks like your invasive intervention actually increased the number of adults who were able to return to full-time work which I think is absolutely great, but I would push on that a little bit and just ask, you know, with many patients living paycheck to paycheck, uh, is 84% good enough? Should we be pushing for higher or is that not realistic based off of how disabling sometimes these spine deformities are?
1: Yeah, I, I think that you make a, a valid point there. I think us getting them back, back, more patients back after surgery than before, I think is a great um, aspect that we that we uh, can do um, the question always is there's many things that play, play into it so not only um, does our surgery play into it but patient factors play into it and also as well um, the ability to get a job also playing as well so our goal is to try to get that to 100% if we can um, but the reality is um, we are improving into that direction and I think the biggest thing to take from it is that we have more people working after the surgery than they were before
0: I think that's excellent. And also it should hopefully help um, help surgeons who specialize in adult spinal deformity to really have that conversation with their patients to just set expectations about when they're gonna really get back to full-time work so they can talk to their own bosses and kind of let them know. Uh, and so that is, that is excellent. Um, I, just to go back to the personal aspect again, Uh, I I love touching on work life balance. And and so on that personal side, uh, do you have a marriage partner? And uh, if so, do you have any children?
1: Yes. So uh, I'm married and we have a a 22 month old and a five month old. Um, So we we moved to St. Louis and a month later we had one of our (laughs) our kids. And uh, so big changes happened. But uh, we're loving every minute with both of them.
0: That is excellent. Now, you are the chief of spine surgery now, so you have a big leadership role. What does work-life balance look for you with two young children uh, and a leadership role? How do you find that balance when it comes to writing papers, doing cases? Uh, What advice would you give to people with how you approach that?
1: Yeah, no, great point. I think, uh, one, I have to give my wife a lot of credit. She uh, takes care of the kids a lot and helps me out a lot and gets me where I want to be. I think the biggest thing that I've learned with this new transition, and another kid, is communication. You know, letting my wife know what my calendar is and what my schedule is uh, in regards to that. I think that's the biggest thing. Everyone going to bed at eight o'clock helps me out because then I can do work <laughs> when they're all asleep at night. Uh, so that's a good, good aspect that I have as well. But. The one thing I would say from the work balance line of, of life that I'm, you know, I'm trying to do a little bit more of is I'm, I'm trying to be more present when I'm in a situation. And what I mean with that, when I'm with my kids, I really have my phone away. I really have not really doing any work, not doing emails. I'm really spending my time with them. And then when I'm working, I'm, uh, I'm working and, and feeling it there. So I think that has been helping me. And I think that at least, in my opinion, thinks my kids enjoy more time with me whenever it's kind of one-on-one and I'm spending that time with them without any interruptions.
0: That's excellent. Uh, Well, we really appreciate uh, you taking this time to chat with us. Again, for those who haven't read this paper, I definitely encourage you to uh, go to the latest Spine Deformity Journal and please download it. It's an excellent read. And even as a PEDS person, uh, I really actually enjoyed it um, because sometimes some of our pediatric patients will eventually need additional adult uh, spine uh, deformity surgery. And so uh, I definitely encourage you all to read this paper. Um, and thank you again, Dr. Newman, for your
1: time. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking time doing this and the SRS putting this together. So really appreciate your time as well.
0: The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education to healthcare care professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information.